Well, should we get started? Yeah. Yeah, let's. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. Oh no, wrong one. Wrong one. How could you? Here we oh. go. Too cheerful. Hello, and welcome to good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. Don't sit still for anything less. As always, we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hello. And by our friend, Vinny. Hello. Oh, I missed someone. <laughs> I'm That's here. Me. I'm here with Brianna. Hi, Brianna. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> that just fell right out of my intro copy. I don't know how that happened. Oh, how no. could you? I'm so sorry. I'm offended. Should I just leave? No, please. You're the most important. <laughs> Don't leave. Yeah. I'm flattered. I feel valued. You are. Feel Believe seen. me. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about, among other things, experimental film, telecommunications, advertising, and toxic waste. Yay! Awesome. Um, Can you remind me what page we started at? 395. Yes. Okay, thank you. I have this new system. It's not really a new system. I've been doing it for weeks now. But um, so I'll put a post-it note where where we're slated to end mm -hmm. for our reading. And then I'll just switch my bookmark and the post-it once I complete the reading. Clever. I have, mm. I have like, I have... I have many bookmarks because I have the end note where we are bookmarked yeah. with a sticky. Mm -hmm. And then I have the the list of the years uh, with a bookmark. And then I try to have the where we starting bookmark and the where we're mm -hmm. ending bookmark. And somehow they all got scrabbled about this week. And I actually had to check with Andrew and see. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, no. See what. The yeah, I, yeah it's very I just have three bookmarks. I've got the where we're starting, where we're ending, and the end note bookmark. But other things I, like um, yeah. when, like the list of years and all of uh -huh. that, I've got those sticky noted. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Mm -hmm. Brianna, yes, do you remember the name of that artist or someone who read, read through Infinite Jest and put like color coded post it flags on? Oh my gosh. everything in the book. Corey Baldoff. It was the Infinite Jest project. I can't find... Oh, she. Uh, began the process of flagging all the references to color in the text. More mm. than 2,600 of them. As really? a mechanism to help her concentrate. On yeah. Oh my gosh. There's um, really that many references to color? Colors? You know, it's yeah. funny. Now that, I, now that I think of it, yeah, I think there are a lot of references. I hadn't to yeah. like they I'm talk be... about the um the, like the green Ford with the aspirin ad on it, for instance, keeps right. coming up and and like uh human human colors, hair yeah. and skin yeah. tones yeah. and clothing uh, colors, air uh, sky colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I follow her on Twitter and she's great. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. 
<laughs> Excellent. I should definitely yeah. follow her also. Her other projects look really fascinating too. It is, it's captivating and disorienting. Yeah. For a and of her Twitter is at Corey Baldoff. B A L D A U F. So we start we start out with uh with Hal and this little digression about tobacco use. Yeah. Could, could I just say that this chunk of reading that we did, I ended up with so many questions. So I'm glad that we're <laughs> back together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This this gross little passage about tobacco use and how he doesn't want to smoke, so instead he uses uh chewing tobacco. Mm-hmm. And how somehow his addiction to sugar is worse than chewing tobacco. Right. I'd rather be addicted to sugar, though. Right. To be honest. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't see how chewing tobacco is a good solution to not being able to smoke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As a tennis right. player. Yeah, I, I think I can speak for all of us when I say that this podcast is strongly against chewing tobacco. <laughs> I would say against tobacco in pretty much any form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Generally, yeah. Right. Generally so. Yeah. Can I think of a form of tobacco I'm in favor of? I heard a thing that it could be used to clean something unexpected, but huh. I can't remember hmm. what. Huh. Is, there must be is, something that huh. it could be good for. Is the like, plant pretty? No. It just looks like it just looks like a doesn't have great big leaves. Yeah, great yeah, it big looks leaves. Like, kind of like um, I don't know. It just looks like a big invasive weed. Right. Yeah. When I first met Hal, I thought he was. I mean, I know I knew that he was uh, hiding in the tunnels to to smoke his his weed in secret, right? Mm -hmm. But there was all the talk about how it was the secrecy that he really craved there that he really got into not so much the the marijuana use and i don't know i didn't i this little this little chunk makes me think that he has a lot more serious addiction issues than we had been led to believe yeah mm -hmm. it seems to me that like in the past the secrecy has been the thing for him but now he's finding himself craving the marijuana itself more and more. Although do other people get that? I well, yeah. I just think that we didn't that we didn't have the whole story because I mean there's he a, didn't there's share a thing, that is like he didn't the, share that piece of the story with us. Is is it at the Eschaton debacle where he's going back and forth with himself and finally lights up a joint right at the like at the court side? Yeah, uh, he he accepts a joint that's oh, being okay. passed around by somebody yeah. else. Yeah, he's like going back and forth because he's like, but the little buddies are right. here, right. and he just absentmindedly takes a, a little a little nip. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that what we call? No, that's sure. not what that is. Sure, sure. I thought it was interesting too that it points out that Hal 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 is genetically wired for a secret drug problem. So yeah. he got that from mm -hmm. his father. And then he says that Mario inherited the uh, fetish for cartridges and puppets. And, and mm -hmm. so so then we we go into this kind of diversion about um, the Medusa versus the Odalisk film. Right. And, and we mm -hmm. get a little more description of what that is. Um, I think I, I would it, watch that. I would absolutely watch this as, <laughs> as a work of experimental film. This sounds riveting. 
Mm-hmm. I thought it sounded like something out, like a scene from The Matrix or something. something yeah, like or like how, a, kind of how I pictured it, like a kung a, fu movie or something. Yeah, people yeah. flying through the air and and yeah. Um, and we keep on getting references to this movie, don't we? The Medusa versus the Odysseus, or is it I mean, just they, that we I, keep I on bringing it up? I don't. I don't know that we're getting references to the film per se. I feel like we've been getting references to the figure of the Medusa and the figure of the Odalisk. Okay. Yeah. Um. Like I think of Madame Psychosis as being kind of like the Medusa and the Odalisk both in one body. Hmm. Um. Ooh. And yeah, I, I think that that's th- this film is just another outlet for that that motif. But I feel like the the concept was introduced in the filmography, mm-hmm. right? And so we started talking about it because of that, and then it start we started noticing that it was coming up a lot. Yeah. Hey, it might be light motif. It might be light motif. Do we, yeah. Should, should I have a light motif sound effect queued up from now on? Yes. I, I love light motif, so <laughs> sure. Light explain, motif deserves a sign, a sound. Uh, in its simplest terms, so like motif is just a recurring image right. or theme in a piece. Right. A light motif would be a motif that like gathers meaning with every recurrence. So it's oh. not just an aesthetic thing. It's like the, the more often it's repeated, the more often you start to understand okay. like okay. its significance in the in the themes right. of the story. Right. A really great novel length example of light motif is the avant garde novel by Carol Maso, Ava. Mm. Put that on your TBR what, list. What's what's I I feel like you've did you read that in your avant-garde literature class? Yes, I did. Ooh. I told you multiple times to read it. <laughs> what is what's it about? I I I've completely forgotten that you told me about this. I mean, I wish I could tell you what it was about. It's, I mean, like most avant-garde fiction is difficult to distill into a tiny little thingy mm-hmm. what the what the piece is about. It's essentially about a woman who is gaining greater understanding of herself. Okay. Her name is Ava. Ah. <laughs> oh. I mean... I would also think of like the lighthouse into the lighthouse as being sort of a landmark example of leitmotif. <laughs> landmark. Yes. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose? Uh, no, but I'll take credit for it. Perfect. I thought it was interesting. They talked about uh, what f- what film viewers thought of James O's film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that they didn't really much like it because they felt cheated <laughs> because they never got to see the faces. Yes, mm-hmm. they also of the Medusa and the Odalisk. There's a thing here. Uh, they're describing the audience reaction to the Medusa versus the Odalisk um, that I feel like could also be like a self-awareness on David Foster Wallace's part of a criticism that could be leveled against Infinite Jest. Mm. Uh, they say right. the film the film audience never does get much of a decent full frontal look at what it is about the combatants that supposedly has such a melodramatic effect on the Rumble's live audience. And so the film's audience ends up feeling teased and vaguely cheated. Yes. Right. I, I mean, you could say this about the, the whole idea of anti-confluentialism that uh, that James O kind of latches onto in his late career. This True. idea that 
like narrative resolve or or some kind of payoff of tension is like dishonest or too easy or something. Hmm. Then they had the joke. The, the joke. Yeah. The yes. joke oh my God, James the joke. O and Mario. Uh, <laughs> uh, what would Which, you say? Orchestrated live in theaters, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. And Which was Andrew. This- yeah. Um, is there a film similar to the joke? Like in our time, in There's, our reality? Because okay. so it sounds I, familiar. It I, does. It, so it couldn't have existed before the advent of digital projection because you need to be able to route a live feed a live from feed. cameras to a projector. Um, it reminds me a little bit of a piece that I saw documented, although not performed live, by Carl Elsasser, where he would, at screenings, he would set up a camera outside, uh, pointed at the street, and he would go, it, it would project live inside the screening area, and he would stand in the middle of the street, basically until the police were called. Mm. Um, that's maybe the closest that I can think of. I'm sure there are things that are closer to this, that are like a live feed of the audience in uh in projection for the audience yeah like the like the idea of mirroring is is interesting there and it was interesting too because james o they would warn the audience right then on the on the marquee or wherever it's, it sounds say to me like you like theaters you're not gonna like it or you're not gonna mm-hmm. want to see this or you're yeah uh, you are strongly advised not to shell out money to see this film right Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, it has that disclaimer, which of yet, course just makes people want to see it more because of course a, then you think, why not? Yes. <laughs> Th- that, this reminds me a little bit of a lesser known um, uh, Steven Soderbergh film called Schizopolis that he made in the oh, yeah. 90s that starts with him uh, standing on a stage and addressing the audience and saying something like, uh, this film is uh, a perfect work of cinema and anything that you dislike or don't understand about it is purely your fault. Um, <laughs> and if, if you don't accept these terms and conditions, you should leave now. Um, and if you don't understand the movie, then you should pay to repeatedly watch it over and over until you do. <laughs> Um, Did he make a lot of money on that movie? Oh, no, it was one of his biggest failures as a film. Damn it. Uh, uh, people, <laughs> critics called it like warmed over film school garbage, um, <laughs> which in really? some ways it is. But but I do think it's also a fun movie. It's a, it's a well, really, yeah, and really it's got strange. it's Criterion DVD. So, it's, I've got the Criterion DVD. It's, yeah. There's it's, the themes of it's there's sort of like this corporate cult that's kind of like Scientology in it and this whole corporate espionage thing. Um, and a, a guy who discovers that he has that there's another copy of him who is a very wealthy dentist who's in debt to the mob, maybe. Right. It's very, very the strange. The movie starts following the copy of the yeah, main well, character. They, they change like, like their consciousnesses through. change bodies. Oh, okay. um, and then they're both disoriented by what happens next. Ooh. <laughs> that actually sounds like it could be good. Yeah, it's or it's a little bit like it feels like it kind of prefigures being John Malkovich, but it's much goofier than being John Malkovich. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a tangent. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. I um, 
Yeah, you know, I also thought, I also thought, so I'm always thinking about the entertainment, right? Yes. The, right. That, and I thought, so, so is this like a setup for the entertainment, the, the, mm. uh, Medusa and the Odalisk? Like, is he, is it him saying, okay, you wanted to see the faces. You wanted to see what was, you know, killing the audience. So, okay, here you go. I mean, the audience wants I it. Could... I'm going to give it to him. I could see that. I feel you like know? James O in his late career has a real contempt for his audience and like the desires of a commercial film audience. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like right. like this the fact that he doesn't show their faces in Medusa versus the Odalisk feels like he's intentionally baiting them into wanting to see those faces. Wanting to see it, right. And 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 the same right. could be said for the joke like you you wanted to see this thing that's supposed to be unwatchable. So here, right. enjoy. So here you go. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, definitely. There's another thing here. Mario said Lyle had said in Candenza had confessed. So that's Jesus. very convoluted. Yes. That, yes. He, that he'd loved the fact that the joke was so publicly static and simple minded and dumb. And that those rare critics who defended the film by arguing at convoluted length that the simple minded stasis was precisely the film's aesthetic thesis were dead wrong as usual. So. Yeah. So he's so making he's, fun of the critics, too. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we can if we can stand another brief uh, detour, I'd like to talk really quickly about the uh, the way that critics are treated in fiction. Ooh, um, you Bri- have a soapbox. Yeah. Bri- well, Brianna and I talked about this in it. It shows up in a number of the Three Pines mysteries that because Clara is a painter and her husband right. is a painter right, and they right. have dealings with the art world. Right. And there's one book in particular that we listened to on a long drive about a um, like Clara getting a bad review from a critic yes. who's notoriously yes. mean and feeling yes. destroyed by it. Yeah. And and I. It occurred to me that I can't think of a work of fiction where a critic is a character in the book and they're treated as being like an enthusiastically dedicated to the art form that they write about. Yeah, they're often seen as the kind of the enemy, the. Yeah, like like always at least a secondary villain. Right, um, and then faceless yeah. too. Like you don't usually, yeah. Often, usually often faceless, but but when Although they show in, up in the Three Pines book, they yeah. When when they show face, up, but... they're there to destroy. You know, right, right, um, right. The the one counter example I can think of is Anton Ego in Ratatouille, um, who that I totally gave you that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you brought that up. Anyway. Um, but that I, I mean, even in in that character for. I would say like 80 to 90% of the movie, he's just this awful man who delights in tearing down uh, people who are doing interesting things. And it's only at the very end of the movie that we get a glimpse into like what he loves about food. That's the, that's like the yeah. movie chef. If you've seen mm-hmm. the movie chef, it's the same. Does, the critic that, is the, does that critic is the get a redemption? Guy? He yes, does. He does. I forgot about that. Yeah. Doesn't he invest in the restaurant? Yes, he does. Oh, so it is, it is just Ratatouille. It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, it's exactly the same. It's he comes and, and yeah. secretly orders and gets some of the food truck food. And then he, they have this confrontation where uh, the chef is yelling at him about, you know, 
about why is he there and blah, 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 blah. And then he breaks the news that he wants to invest in him and he has bought a space for a restaurant and he wants it to be, you know, so, mm-hmm. so it is, yeah. it's the same as Ratatouille. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is Ratatouille. That. Um, but yeah, so I think, uh, not, not to get too Freudian, but I think that uh, most of the time when writers write about critics, they're writing about their own hurt feelings. Mm-hmm. I can see uh-huh. that. Yeah, I can see that too. Um, which is particularly odd coming from David Foster Wallace because he wrote and pub- like he, w- he was a fairly accomplished literary critic. Um, <laughs> and, and he... There's there's a piece in I think consider the lobster or maybe a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, where he writes about uh, John Updike's latest book, and, oh, yeah, and has a pretty like like he's pretty negative about most of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, he says there's like a couple things that are really lovely, but by and large it just doesn't hold together. Um, but doesn't he also critique the process of? critiquing sure am i remembering that sure but but i also think like in the real world of criticism whether you're talking about film criticism or art or literature um i think it's very rarely about critics offering consumers like a recommendation on whether or not they should spend their hard-earned cash on a thing um Mm -hmm. And it's more about like understanding the work as it's made and, and thinking about whether or not it's um, <laughs> whether or not it has merit uh, in a broader creative context. Mm-hmm. So perhaps societally, our understanding of a critic's purpose is skewed. Uh, like all things, it's tinged and poisoned by capitalism. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Critics, critics yeah. aren't consumer advocates. They're not consumer reports. They're not doing product tests. They're uh, they're analyzing and examining and trying to understand something. And most of them, I would say, have a better understanding of the medium that they write about than the people who are working in that medium. <laughs> There's also something about our culture that is very. Uh, we don't. I don't think we take criticism. Well, yeah. that we take it as yeah. an attack instead of as a conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In the art world, I think, you know, you do peer reviewing all the time. And so it's you you learn at least to a degree uh, to embrace it and use it, the, the idea of critiquing. But I think in the world, in other ways, if someone if someone critiques your work and they're not complimentary, you take it really hard. Yeah. I mean, like even an attack, in art, a personal attack or something instead of, well, this doesn't e- really work. Even in art. I think that like critique is one thing, but the like acceptance by the art world in general is this whole other it's thing. Different. And there, there's yeah. so many art pieces that are these like cynical, uh, rejections of the idea that the art world has, taste or understands what's good or something there was most recently there was that um that artist who like duct taped a banana to the wall at the venice biennial (laughs) have you heard about this no some artist duct taped a banana to the wall at the venice biennial and it sold for uh fifty thousand dollars or something Ah. like that oh wow Um, which in itself in itself is like cynical and not very interesting to me the thing that i find more interesting as a piece of performance art is the other artist who came up to it 
untaped it from the wall and ate it. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's a, that's a better comment on uh, the art world and art markets generally. <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of bananas, and this is just a fun fact. Hmm. Um, apparently, when bananas have have brown spots, they no longer have any real nutritional value. Really? Really? They're all sugar. Hmm. Oh. Hmm. And that's when you use them to make banana bread. That's yes. what I said. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when I learned this. <laughs> I also just wanted to point real, real speedily quick that um, when we're ta- when we're reading about the Medusa and the Odalisk, there's this whole examination about whether or not the Hologram, the holograms are like actually there, or what the audience's uh, relationship with the holograms is. Um, and it uses the words ghosts or wraiths mm. at the bottom of 396. I am now paying mm-hmm. attention to every, every time a ghost or a wraith shows up. So, yes, uh-huh. here we are. Mm. Ghosts. Maybe. Ghosts. Maybe. Who knows? I had a, I had a, like a wait, what moment too, because I'm still confused about Mario and his filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And so when they, when they talked about the joke and they talked yeah. about James O and Mario being in the theater and, and they described his camera setup. And I thought, is it different? And I wanted to ask you, so was it, was it diff- a different camera then? Because yes. I thought, yeah. so we got a better camera yes. uh, from so, James so the, O's the, will. The cameras, the cameras mm-hmm. they use for the joke are Bolex H32s. And, okay. and so one of them is head-mounted on Mario. Right. I assume that this is like a previous iteration of what Mario uses now. Okay. Uh, probably less, less refined. The camera he has now is a Bolex H64, I oh, believe. so, Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Now, do Bullock's 32s actually exist? No. The, the okay. only H line that Bullock's ever made was the H16. Um, okay. Uh, 32 doesn't make sense as a, as a film camera measurement. It would be an H35, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think 32 refers more to like... I see it as like bit bit rate or bit depth or something because it seems to double with every iteration. There's also uh, another odd thing. Where does that come up? It's much later, but, but, and I don't want to talk about the context yet, uh, but they, they mention footage measured in meters. They say there's a few meters of footage of this person. Um, Oh yeah, which is an unusual thing to say unless you're talking about actual film. In theory, you could also be saying it about videotape, although it's not a measure that I've ever heard applied to videotape. Mm-hmm. So that makes me kind of reassess whether this stuff is shot digitally or on film, or like what the difference is between those two. I don't know. It's still, it's still very confusing to me what type of imaging these cameras use. Mm. I cannot help you there. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think anyone can. I, I, it continues to make me feel like David Foster Wallace just didn't know uh, and was kind of hedging his bets in both directions. Hmm. <laughs> so then we get back to Mario's film. Yeah, and now yeah. we're back in the Onantiad thing that Mario made. And we have these, these <laughs> and, headlines. And that, are, that some are real and some are fake. 
right? right? They tell us. Like, the, uh, like I like the, the Statue of Liberty accident that killed the engineer when the big burger fell on him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And our overambitious headline writer is at it again. The uh, chemically over-garrulous headliner eventually fired even from subheader department for exceeding verbal parameters and now starting to get into the same hot water all over again in a much less prestigious daily paper. (laughs) I continue to find so many parallels between the gentle administration, the Johnny Gentle administration, and our current one. Yeah, particularly in this section. Like like he's gentle spoke at a scout convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, you all be able to eat right off the U.S. that, you know, the, the yeah. right off the and And it remind me of the Donald Trump speech to the Boy Scouts early on. Mm-hmm. that was met with outrage because he was uh, using he was kind of curt, like, who the hell? He was saying stuff like that. And he attacked uh, Obama and Clinton. And he uh, bragged about the crowd size at his inauguration, and he joked about firing the secretary of the uh, HHS, and he, mm-hmm. uh, he suggested calling Washington, D.C. The, stu- the sewer, and then he told this really bumbling story about a New York cocktail party with the hottest people in New York. It was all such an un- inappropriate thing, and it, hmm. it just jumped back into my... Uh, focus after the little reference. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that reminded me of Trump was they were talking about how the, the areas that were being used as a toxic dump were chosen essentially because New Hampshire and Maine didn't let the clean U.S. party on their yes. independent ballots. Yes. And the mayor of Syracuse had the misfortune to sneeze on the president during a campaign swing. And yes. so they're seeing yes. this like massive political retaliation mm. yeah, and bullying and blackmail and yes, and retaliation. Yeah, it's like right. really scary kind of to read it. Although we yeah. should say, I would like to point out that Donald Trump is not the American president or American politician of any stripe who invented petty political retaliation for things. Mm-hmm. No, but he's much more blatant and outrageous about it. Uh, generally speaking, I think that's yes. probably true. I yes. Yeah. Now, what I was wondering, though, um, speaking of Johnny Gentle and parallels to other presidents, um, but with um, Ty kind of being the secret mastermind behind everything, I was wondering Mm -hmm. if um, Johnny Gentle is actually closer to the other unpopular Republican president, George W. Bush. Uh, Is he unpopular anymore? I thought the Democrats loved George W. Bush. We, like, well, we all like him. We all like George now, you know, comparatively speaking. Now that exactly. Know comparatively speaking. Worse, but, yeah. But he got he did get it. Was he president when this book was being written? No, this no. was this was during the Clinton years. Uh, well, it would probably. Oh. So if, if David Foster Wallace started this in like 91, 92, then that would have been the end of Bush senior years. But you're yeah. right, Vinny, like the secret, like what where really is the power? Mm-hmm. Well, I was also I was also thinking about like Bannon. Um, <laughs> well, no, older. I was thinking about uh, was it um, what's his name uh, who had the Good stroke in office? Um, who was that? Oh. Whose wife was uh, functionally president for a few months? Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow what a Wilson. Step up. Uh, oh wow! Had had a stroke in. Uh, I didn't look this up in advance. He had a stroke in like 1919. Um, and was completely incapacitated, and basically his wife and his cabinet kept up, kept up this ruse that he was uh, 
functionally making decisions when in fact he wasn't. They, wow. they, like, they forged his signature on things and stuff. And you think about our current our current administration. You have a you have somebody who has never held public office and honestly clearly doesn't know how a lot of things work mm-hmm. and is probably only marginally understanding and aware of foreign policy details and econo- economy oh, yeah. details like, beyond, you know, it, it really he, he definitely, unaware of everything. So he, he definitely doesn't read anything he signs. No. So right. somebody, when he reads off the teleprompter and you know the words aren't his because he can't say them, mm-hmm. uh, somebody's <laughs> do, somebody is doing that. Somebody's writing it. Somebody is putting it together. Yeah. And Gentle comes across in much the same way as this washed-up uh, entertainer, right? TV mm-hmm. personality. And right. He has his own ideas about some things, like the, like his OCD uh, stuff coming through with the clean up the, the continent sort of thing is is probably him. But everything mm-hmm. else you have to think is coming from somewhere else. Yeah, mm-hmm. and probably from Rodney Tyne. Yes. Although we, don't... we also get this mm. uh, this indication that maybe the the experialist idea of donating the concavity or the right. convexity to Canada is was maybe Luria P's idea. Right. Oh yeah, that made me wonder. I'm wondering, I could go back and look, but I was lazy, and I was wondering if you could all help me remember what we know about Luria P. Yeah, I was. I I asked that same question. What do we know about Luria uh, P? Why are you asking this question? Yeah, uh, I well, feel like I I feel like I backed myself into this corner, mm-hmm. <laughs> where I prompted you to ask me this question. I feel no, like this question is specifically I, I to me. I didn't have it written right at this point in the book, but I had it. I had a big question mark and wrote it down. And <laughs> what what do we know about Luria P here? Yeah, I know we don't Something. know much about her. Luria P. Who is but she? She's kind of she's popped me, up a few times. Let me yes, do a quick has. a quick search and see where she first shows up. Thank okay. goodness. Thank you. Um, I would I would also like to say just as a funny with the funny with the the little headline things is that. Uh, gentle president gentle did not have recording equipment in the oval office <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> because he thought that was a really bad idea after mm-hmm. you know after nixon <laughs> mm-hmm. well and also he thought that they were cesspools of germs mm, oh true yes that's true yeah um but i think the first time we heard about loria p was from steeply if I'm remembering correctly. I think so. In well, the conversation the, with, with um, Marat. Marat. Okay. There, there's yeah. actually an earlier thing uh, in the uh, the conversationalist section. Uh, oh, himself yes. drops the name uh, M. Duplessis and his malevolent but allegedly irresistible amanuensis comoperative Luria P. Oh. Um, and then we hear... So why is she connected with Duplessis? Well, okay, so now I'm finding her in the section with Steeply and Marat. Rodney Tyne held the ear of the White House and whose stenographer had long doubled as the stenographer come jeune fille de vendredi of M. Duplessis, former assistant coordinator of the Pan-Canadian Resistance. 
and whose passionate ill-disguised attachment tines to this double amanuensis one Mademoiselle Luria Perec of Lamartine. Perec. Uh, Coordinator of what resistance? Canadian? Pan-Canadian resistance. Okay. uh, Gave rise to these questions of the high-level loyalties of Tyne and whether he doubled for Quebec out of the love for Luria or tripled the loyalties, pretending only to divulge secrets while secretly maintaining his USA fealty. Because that was my other question. What do we know about Rodney Tyne? Because I thought we had heard about him before. So they're saying that he... uh, He's basically... I mean... He's like a double agent. Yeah, well, there's there's speculation, although... Um, He's the chief of the Office of Unspecified Services, right? Isn't he... I thought he was he was uh, the chief of staff for Gentle. Am I wrong about that? No. I uh, thought I Mr. Saw Rodney the- Tyne, on page 400, Mr. Rodney Tyne, chief U.S. Office of Unspecified Services. Oh. But I, he seems, seems like to he be like... both. He yeah, seems he to seems to be both. Gentle's, like like confidant kind mm-hmm. of. Um, or puppet master. Yeah. To, to go back to the George W. Bush analogy, he seems like the Dick Cheney. Right. right. Yeah. Right. So we have this guy whose loyalties are perhaps with Canada, with Quebec. Is it Quebec? When the, right. the pan Canadian, is that? Well, or at least, at least he seems. Everybody? It seems I think it's Quebec bigger. Okay. Um, uh, he's so so at the very least, he seems totally smitten with this person who is uh, like spy or right. secret operative for Quebec. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. All the all the little connections to the Donald Trump era, like the Canadian uh, PM denies a secret mini golf outing with right. outraged yeah. New England governors. <laughs> the golf reference. We're out golfing. Uh, and then the description of, you know, the line that they drew, the the federal disaster area line that they drew that that marked off the New England states for to become the the dump. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kept picturing our president saying, "Well, it is what it is." Mm. Yeah, it's it's too bad. I feel sorry for all those people. They have to move, and oh yeah, mm-hmm. they're babies. Are deformed. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and the yeah, it's it's terrible, but it is what it there's, is. They there's can a move thing. To a new there's place. a thing that gentle. I feel like cultivates though is maybe more subtle in the text, but I think it's there that Trump doesn't do, which is it seems like gentle pretends to. Ha- that his feelings are hurt about the fact that all this stuff is going on, and it makes him very sad. And then he needs other people to console him and tell him it's going to be okay. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. Is it gentle that says they they say it'll cost too much to clean it up and uh, we can't have it besmirching the newly clean rest of the USA. It's like it is. Um, It's cost too much to fix it. So we're just going to move forward here. Is that gentle that says that? It's hard to say. I guess it. I. Yeah, this, I get during the assumption. this whole conversation, uh, gentle is like sucking oxygen or on a yeah, respirator yeah. or using a I, mask or something. I, I read this uh, under the assumption that Tyne is just making stuff up and gentle either doesn't know what's going on or doesn't care. He or, seems incapacitated. He does. He does. 
He does. Just with he all seems the... like he's on life support. Yeah. Sort of, mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. He's in the room, but he's not really in the room, and people keep right. pretending that he's actually there and uh, fit to make decisions, and yet he doesn't right. quite seem that way. Yeah, like he very clearly yeah. isn't. Yeah, although my question is, is this an accurate depiction of what happened, or is this a satirical oh, this version is of true. what happened? This, this is very says, true. Yeah. This is yeah. satire. Yeah. Because yeah. with uh, any gentle's lines, the ha-ha, I read it as like um, almost this Elvis-like um, affectation. Oh, oh, shoot! Oh, yes. Um, and yeah, I envisioned I it more as a... <gasps> <laughs> like right, yeah, like, yeah, or, or Darth Vader. Mm. Yeah, I was yeah. imagining it just as incoherent garbling and like, 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 a, like a, or an adult on the peanuts cartoons. Mm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yes. So well, I thought it was his breathing in and things. out. Yeah, hmm. but so clearly not being, actually president. So right. the point. Right. So the yeah. point being that none of what was said during this meeting really came from him. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's so the idea that's like being shown. Yeah. yeah. Right. So there's a couple other things this reminded me of. One is that they, they mention the uh, tone of the film is that Gentle remains a slightly unbent, but basically genial and befuddled figurehead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That reminds me a lot of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Um, who would have been fresh in the memory of David Foster Wallace while writing this, but that was certainly a thing that the Reagan administration used to their advantage was this public perception that Reagan was kind of a bumbling, lovable, like not, not totally plugged in person. And so how could he have possibly known about Iran Contra, for instance? Mm -hmm. I do like the line where they're, um, they're talking about the, what, their predictions for how the mass exodus from the northeast is mm. going to go, and the Secretary of Transportation is talking about uh, motorcycles and vans and skateboards, and he says, right. "I don't foresee I don't foresee demographically significant hang gliding personally at this juncture." Right, I love and, that line. Yeah. Right. And is it here or is it in a previous section where they were talking about what makes a refugee and how you need oxen right. to be refugees? Oh, right. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, right. that's around and here. And that's in a future yeah. section. They're determined that they will not call them. No one is going to call them refugees. Right. 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 Because they don't fit the criteria. They don't have eminent <laughs> non-domain renewal grade brand of sacrifice, you bet. Heroes. Heroes. Uh, which right. reminds me that when anyone in government the starts calling spell. you a hero, you'd better update your will. Yep. Right. Oof. Yeah, we know that too, right? We have our uh-huh. frontline workers are heroes. Mm-hmm. Right. Everybody seems to compliment Gentle and, and say say complimentary things to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except the Secretary of State keeps the Secretary of State keeps raising objections and protesting things. Mm-hmm. Which was interesting. That yeah, there was that one Secretary voice. of State is not going to be there for long. No, <laughs> is the be sense out. that I get. And uh, it's time that says it. But it says President Gentle has decided we're going to reinvent not just government but history. Mm-hmm. This also reminds me of our present situation mm-hmm. and messing messing with the 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 true map. Sort of yeah. like like someone redrawing hurricane forecast lines on a map with a magic marker. Right. 
There's also the really funny, the little funny that Mario or whoever has written this stuck, sticks in about when Tyne raises a grammatical question. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And it says, every year at that point, Moms removes her witch's hat and whips it around in circles over her head three <laughs> times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's see. So then we get into this section about Clipperton. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Even Even a little bit before that, there's also that Mario's film raises questions about Gentle's mental stability and mm. kind of says that he hid his medical history from the Oh, yes, uh, in this news montage. Mm. This right. also, um, that reminded me of the, so the 78 Democratic primary where there was all the, like, dirty campaign tricks from, uh, or no, 72, because it was uh, a Nixon, that there was allegations that Nixon was involved about the Humphrey versus Muskie primary, and they leaked that Muskie yes. had gone to a had 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 been hospitalized for a mental health issue no, or his wife Musty. had it was it, it was his uh it was his vice president oh oh what was his name egg, egg uh eagleton. it was uh, wait wait uh, eagleton yes wait eagleton. a minute i just remembered eagleton. something i oh. just remembered something that may or may not be here or there but the the infamous letter that divulged this information um, and, and caused, it was maybe a forgery or it was a forgery as we now know, uh, was called the Canuck letter. Oh, uh, it implied that Senator Muskie held prejudice against America. Oh no, this is a different thing. Held prejudice against Americans of French Canadian descent. Ooh. Uh, this, this is one of the things that the movie, all the president and the book, all the president's men is about. Uh, the successful sabotage work of Donald Segretti and Ken W. Clausen. In a childish scrawl with poor spelling, the author of the Canuck letter claimed to have met Muskie and his staff in Florida and to have asked Muskie how he could understand the problems of African Americans when his home state of Maine has such a small black population, to which a member of Muskie's staff was said to have responded, not blacks, but we have Canucks. But this was, this was later revealed to be a complete fraud, a complete forgery mm. by somebody working for Nixon. But ultimately, it was because they wanted Nixon wanted to run against Humphrey and not Muskie. So things go around and come around, and it's all the same thing over and over. Yep. Yeah. There's a on page four hundred six. They say something like, uh, "What is it? Top aides huddle as worries over Gentle's pathological inability to deal proactively with any sort of real or imagined rejection." Mm. Mount in face of the Canadian showdown and uh, mm. goes on to pretty much say that he's he will eliminate his own country with with nukes in order to punish Canada if they don't go along with his plan. Mm. Yes, that's sort of back to the critics, right? It's like mm-hmm. yeah, but it's also with him, it, it with then uh, it also talks about how this is sort of a Romana Clay allusion to um, Eric Clipperton to Clipperton leading yeah. right into Clipperton. I just realized this. The um, the nukes and pointing them within the silos right. downward uh, is taking the the colloquialism within Infinite Jest of eliminating one's own map. Oh, uh, yes. very literally. Yes. yes. Um, mm-hmm. Which. Yes. Ooh, Good so point. cool. Yeah. <laughs> and so creepy. 
Yes. Why, do we, why do we end up with such creepy presidents? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want to uh, know. Although we also have to say, I assume that that's, or th I think it might even say that that's satire. That's right. Mario's satire. But yeah. satire is often based on. Oh yeah. On uh, some factual. Yeah. It wouldn't be satire if it weren't right. based in some sort of fact. Right. Wouldn't it just be fiction? Right. Then it right. would just be fiction. Yeah. Or wait, yeah. Yes. Or opinion? I don't know. Yeah. It wouldn't be irony. <laughs> ah, ha, ha. there you go. Thank you. Okay, Clipperton. 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 Okay, what do people have to say about Clipperton? So sad. Yeah. I thought it was so fascinating. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a fascinating, um, it's a special kind of bullying and blackmail. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, also because it relies on the essential goodness of the person that you're bullying or blackmailing. Right. The way and, it's written about here feels like, uh, I mean, it, in a sense, it's like he's just a, a whiny spoil sport with who's like incredibly self-destructive and taking it out on the world. But the narration kind of makes it sound like he's discovered um, he's discovered this new strategy, you know, like it's it's game theory or something Winning by psychological default. Mm -hmm. Right, it's, right, right. He's betting on the goodness of other people. Mm-hmm. And it, it works until yeah. it doesn't, as until is alluded in footnote well, 160. Right. I thought that him taking his own life was not within the context of a match. I understood it to have been a just kind of exhaustion thing brought about by just the emotional toil of playing tennis the way he has been. And then maybe coming to some sort of existential conclusion through talking with Mario. That's but possible. Although they maybe say maybe I missed something. They say footage exists of it, and I don't I know why worried, footage yeah. would exist. I was kind well, of yeah, but there's hands. also footage of him talking to Mario. I was a little wringing my hands about that. I was worried that Mario shot him. I didn't think Mario shot him. No, I thought it says footage of his suicide to... exists. Well, well shot the image of him talking to Mario too. Those are not. Those aren't Mario to shoot him. I don't. Mario was holding something that you couldn't see clearly. What was he holding? He wasn't was holding are, the gun. He was, was holding he? a light. He was holding a light meter and something else. But I don't. Right. I don't and think something that, else. I don't. I don't believe. Maybe I'm wrong. But I read it that those two things, those two bits of footage, were not taken at the same time. I. Hmm. Okay. I agree. I don't think Mario was in the footage of Clipperton killing himself. No, he's... I think that, that the why timeline... Is, why do you think that? I think that the timeline is something along the lines of... Mario talks to Clipperton. Clipperton has some sort of realization, so full of despair, eliminates his own map, and there's footage of it. Because... I don't... They were filming him that day. Is I don't, I don't that get that. That was my understanding. I don't know if it's right. He's but staring down I'm between okay his feet it. and trying not to smile. Right. M Mario's laughing at something funny Clipperton has apparently just let slip. 
I don't I don't right. know why that would raise flags. I was the thing that raised my that I was instantly wondering about was the what is he what is it that you can't see that Mario's holding? Why would he mention why would they even mention that if it's not important what it was that he was holding? I don't know, but I can't <laughs> I can't imagine that Mario would even be capable of firing a gun. That and also I I can see the I can see the logic of well why else would they have hid the footage and interred it with James yeah but they o say if Mario wasn't involved but this they footage, say explicitly that it is of Clipperton killing himself yes well he and they, they also say well could, wait a minute they, could he they not say, have killed himself by telling <clears throat> Mario to shoot him no that doesn't count that's not suicide yeah. suicide also, by cop. Suicide by Mario, by little kid. Mm. Nah, I th I think that uh, yeah. you can't grip a camera. They so, do, do they also say th this is uh, this footage. The footage of Mario and Clipperton together hasn't been suppressed. Mm -hmm. They say it's available footage of Eric Clipperton, and they say certain other and doubtless really disturbing footage exists. But well, does it say explicitly that it took place during a match? No. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he killed himself during a match. I think that's he did, fair. though. That's fair, but like, that's when fair, else would there I... be footage being shot of him? Right, yeah, that's what I'm thinking, too. He's a big deal tennis too. player. And why would James O. take this particular video to... Well, except... I was going to say, why would he take the video literally to the grave with him? But... The question, of course, comes up, who is Eric Clipperton? Where did he come from? Why is he there? And was also it too. some kind of bizarre setup by James O, who's there I... filming matches a lot and seems to be there a lot more than he he typically is at matches? I mean, and was, yeah. was it like the conversationalist, mm -hmm. you know, setting up? This, ultimate realism this this weird uh situation and then filming what's happening around it and and this phenomena of you know if i say i'm going to kill myself if you beat me then let's watch and see what happens and oh look not only do the not only did the tennis players just knuckle under and let him win uh but but even the authorities so to speak the 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 adults and the those who run the tennis matches, even they seem incapable of stepping in and and doing something about it. Instead, they change the way they keep statistics so that when you meet Clipperton, you, the the loss, your automatic loss does count. not count against your against your um, statistics. Uh, mm -hmm. So perhaps. They say that there's you don't they don't know where this kid came from. He doesn't he's a mystery, you know, when you go home, you, nobody knows where he lives, uh where he's from. Uh no one spots him outside of ETA. He's this really mysterious figure. So maybe that's why James O hid the footage because he basically he basically caused the kid to kill himself. Or is he a ghost? Or is he a ghost who doesn't really hmm. even... Maybe he's a hologram. 
I mean, or is he an actor? Right. Was I it, think of him as an yeah. actor. He doesn't have to be able to play tennis. He could be anybody. Right. Because, uh, because it, he never he plays not, tennis. He's not going to lose. No. But if he ends up... I think he's if, a ghost. If James, if James O is betting on the... On the on the idea that no one will consent to beat him in a game of tennis, given the threat to his life. Mm -hmm. And then if James O was wrong and somebody said, enough but of then, this, this is ridiculous. Then, but then why would he him. have live ammunition in the gun? Because, well, it, because James O doesn't do things halfway. Well, also, the only who, way who is, is telling us about the live ammunition? So you, I'm confused. So you're saying that Clipperton faked a suicide? Maybe. I don't know. I think he, I think he shot himself when somebody finally said, I'm going to play you and beat you. That's what I think happened, too. And what does Mario find so compelling about him? Yeah, what do they say? They say something about that, but I forget what. He, nobody, nobody is his friend except this little kid, Mario, who was a little kid at the time. Mm -hmm. What if Oren played him and beat him because he got eh. sick of it? I could, I could see Oren doing that. I could too. I, I could see like Oren, Oren making was, that choice. But wasn't Oren a pretty so-so tennis player? Yeah, but, right, right. But so Eric he would Clipperton stand to gain a lot. Play. Right. Yeah, I guess. And they they were roughly Clipperton. the same age. Clipperton was sixteen or seventeen, and it says Oren was seventeen at the time. So they should have come up a, against a each other. A solid but sort of plateau stuck and no longer much improving player. But there's no evidence that Eric Clipperton could play tennis at all. I mean, well, they say something about like he's. He's a solid tennis player. He doesn't look totally out of place on the court, but he's yeah. not remarkable. And he does master the single... Uh, oh, the single hand serve. Yeah. Oh, right, because yeah. he has to hold his gun with the other right. hand. Oh, yeah. It's all very troubling. Perhaps mm -hmm. at some point we'll find out what's on the film. Yes? Perhaps. But it must be something pretty bad, or it must be something... That really implicates James O. or or his or family somebody, or, or somebody or somebody else, him, or ETA. someone close to him. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I th I think the existence of it as a document is. I mean, it implicates some people in criminal negligence at the very least. If they right. like, if officials allowed this game to continue with a right. with a firearm on the court, right? Um, I think that that's probably reason enough to not have. Well, that also makes you accessible wonder, to anyone. That, make, that also makes me think that it was all set up by James O. Because why, why does ETA let this go on? Maybe well, we because also, it's James not O. Just, maybe it's because not just James ETA, says, though. No, but it's, it's not just ETA. It's like, but it's certainly at ETA every single day. Goes on. Is so he's maybe, not an ETA student, though. Yeah, he's yeah. just somebody that ETA students meet in competition, which usually would happen elsewhere. It's it's right. it's uh, Onanta who let it go on. Oh, I thought he was. I thought he was at ETA. No, he would be there for tournaments sometimes. He's an independent. Right. They give a um, 
they have that story about the ETA oh, okay. student who comes right. up against him and is like completely right. psychologically destroyed by him. Okay, right. I just think that it has James O's fingers all over it. The whole situation, maybe, the whole setup. Maybe, but I, I feel like happens. there's there's so many awful ghoulish things about the world this book takes place in that weren't orchestrated by James O. And if it wasn't James O that orchestrated it, then somebody did. Do you think? Yes. I think I think Eric Clipperton just realized a a a flaw in the system that would allow him to win without any real skill. I agree that that could be possible, but I feel like it was set up somehow. And I'm really suspicious of James O because he was taping all these he was taping. Yeah, but he's these. a he's a documentary filmmaker. He had a project that he I think he had some right, kind of a grant for. But why? Because he's a filmmaker and he makes films. Why making a documentary about what? Tennis. What part of tennis? An interesting a... kid that comes along and says he's going to kill himself if somebody No, it's beats not him? about Clipperton specifically. It's about uh, doing under ostensible USTA auspices a two-part documentary on junior competitive tennis stress and light. Right. Stress, junior tennis stress. What's more stressful than being told? Oh, yeah, your yeah, I, I can absolutely I, agree I, that that Clipperton would probably be a subject of this documentary, but it doesn't seem like he's the subject of the documentary. There were a lot of little funnies in this. I liked that they said that the it was an end note that said that tennis umpires tend to be retired high school principals who don't do mm -hmm. it for the pay, but because they can once again exercise some slight authority over the young. I don't <laughs> right. know, that just mm -hmm. made me chuckle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, one other thing that made me question. Did I know that James O is buried in Quebec? Oh, no, this was new information. He's buried in the, in the toxic concavity convexity, like right across the border from Quebec. Yeah, with his case of special mm. lenses and some cartridges that are not to yeah. be viewed. Because, and there's room for them in the casket because he's so tall <laughs> that he needs a really big casket. But it's, but it's he's very, but he's very yes. skinny. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I thought the whole thing, I kept, I kept going back to how troubling, what a troubling type of blackmail it is. I mean, it's one thing to just bully your way and blackmail mm -hmm. somebody. Mm-hmm. And usually blackmail involves like trying to keep something that you're embarrassed about right? from from others. But in this case, it's like really using your goodness against you, mm -hmm. which is something to contemplate. Yeah. So now we have this section about... Leading into the advertising thing. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's sort yeah. of framed around this paper that Hal wrote as a seventh grader about the the advertising collapse of the reconfiguration era. Right. Oh, mm -hmm. before you before you go on, would you just guy would you guys just tell me what this is a tiny little thing. But we come across it all the time. The ATF ATHSCME. I don't do know you, that we know what it stands. Well I think we do. Oh. I think we've heard it. But how do you oh, say yeah. it when you come across it in your reading? I it's so tough to say. I say aths me. Yeah, I'd say well, kinda kind of like acne. acne. Yeah. yeah. So I do pronounce the C as a hard C. So asks yeah. me. Asks me. Asks me. Asks me. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I, so I'm not it's the just only really one tough to say. Yeah. 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 I trip over it every time. Okay. 
Yeah, I've never said it out loud. I've only said it in my head, and it <laughs> sounds a lot better in my head. Yeah, yeah, yep. me too. Yeah, it it does sound better in my head. But even there, I've been stumbling. I'm, I mean, you could read it. it. You could read the THS as silent and say Acme. Mm-hmm. Because hmm. English allows us to do things. Yeah, like we that. It, with English you yeah. can just make any letters you don't like into or, silent letters. Or or ask me. Ask me. Mm-hmm. Or at 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 at's me. At's or just sm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this was really fascinating. Yeah. I thought this whole thing about the advertising was incredibly fascinating. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And and helps to explain the whole why subsidized time came into right. being. Right. It was like a much needed shot in the arm for the advertising industry. Right. And I also was quite, uh, I found it all quite interesting because it really parallels what's happened to broadcast TV now. For yeah. Real. Yeah, that, that it maybe does. What, and I don't really understand t- the timeline for all of it. Hey, um, but stop that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, how much was happening? The demise of the the main network channels and all was happening when David Foster Wallace was writing this, and how much was his? It seems like, I mean, this would have, I guess the cable wars would have been going on at the time, but this is like way before Netflix was even an idea. I looked up up Netflix and it claimed to, I think I saw that it was founded in 1997. Yeah, but for the first, like, five to ten years. It was actually like uh, DVDs or or videotapes, right? Yeah. Uh, that came in the mail mm-hmm. originally. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So, but so much of what's described here is so Netflixian and hey, streaming. Speaking of streaming speaking of awful and, ideas at like inflection points in media history, I don't know if Netflix ever did it or if it was just competing services that tried it. Those like single use DVDs that you'd get by mail. Do you remember those? Yes. You'd like op- you'd open the package and you'd you'd once you opened the package you had twenty four hours to watch the DVD and then it would stop oh, working. That's weird. Oh, that's really that's weird. right. And then you just throw it away. Can you imagine what like what an ecological disaster that would have been if that wow. became the the format for movie distribution? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we would like figure out some way to make them recyclable or biodegradable or something like that. Yeah. But. Oh, that would that's yeah. But yeah, so yeah, like speaking it, of it does seem massive like massive trash pile. Right, <laughs> right. It does seem like oddly prescient. Um, this description of the like the fall of network TV and right. the advertising crisis, and he even talks about the kind of the demise of print media. Also, in one of the end notes, he talks about. Uh, a magazines being like put out of business right, by right by by multimedia things uh-huh. or mm-hmm. by online right you know, getting your newspapers online and right and your yeah, magazines although, online and 
In our timeline and in our world, though, it seems like advertisers were actually pretty quick to adapt with streaming and with Netflix and with all of that. Am I just making that up? Well, I think that advertising has gone through a lot of turmoil in the last... It's stabilizing now, but like Mm -hmm. around 2006, 2010, uh, there was a lot of turmoil in advertising and particularly like network TV advertising. There were rumblings of this with VCRs, but when TiVo came out and you could just push a button to skip over ads or you could like you could like fast forward through ads in live TV, that became a, a flashpoint of... Controversy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's stuff that this doesn't foresee. Like, I think um, there's a lot of talk about monopolies in in this. They mentioned the uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act a few times. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Which is, you know, maybe Netflix was in that situation for a little while, but now we see that, like, there's a lot of competition in the streaming service space. So... So when would it? When would all the cable channels have come into like? Oh, being that a real would have been thing? like. You know, we. I remember looking into this for one of the sections that talks about the the TP consoles. I think it would have been around the mid '90s that you would have started seeing like, either via satellite TV or via digital cable. You'd just get hundreds of channels. So that would have been happening during the time that this book was written. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably shortly after. Yeah. So it may have, it may have been. He probably could have seen it, it coming from. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that I thought was funny that it references, it says something about the, the the demise of broadcast TV and the and the three main networks, right? Uh, except that they said something like, "But not PBS." <laughs> right. Well, they, right. I mean, yeah, I, I think. I guess because it wasn't. It's not. Well, because it has a different has a different business right? model. It's not it advertiser supported, and it's right. it's not a for profit venture. Right. I do think it's it makes me curious what happens to PBS in this in this world. Is there like a PBS? Does PBS become an interlaced distributor, or do they just evaporate, or or what yeah. happens to them? Yeah, they, they don't. They never mention it again. Yeah, I was hoping yeah. That they would because yeah. A couple technical things that I noticed. Uh, one is that they, they finally tell us that cartridges are diskettes. So like palm sized floppy disks ish is how I'm imagining them. And that they hold 4.8 megabytes. Oh, wow. Which is almost nothing. Yeah. Like there's, there's no way you could compress, uh, like a full movie onto, onto a, into 4.8 megabytes. Um, right. Even at standard definition, video CDs needed like 800 megabytes for 40 minutes, 45 minutes of video. So that's odd. What was happening in computer storage stuff? Like, or like this, what were we using? CDs? Were there writable CDs? There there weren't writable CDs yet. CD-ROMs would have existed starting around 89 or so. Uh, Writable CDs came in the late 90s, like 90. Six ninety-seven would have been the so first we were CDR still drives. Using floppies, floppies, yeah, mm-hmm. three, uh, like so like the, the three and a half ones. inch little, floppy disks, yeah. The little no longer floppy. Yeah, floppy and those discs. hold the double density three and a half inch floppies hold w- just under one and a half megabytes. So okay. this would have this would have been an improvement over that, but also zip disks would have been a thing around this time, and I think those held like ten or eleven megabytes. 
Right. It's funny. It's funny to read it now because because like it makes total sense that you could have a little a little cassette that would hold a whole movie. Right. I mean, we don't even think anything of that. Well, like, oh, yeah, of course, like, like, of course, a, you know, of course, a, you a can chip do that. the but size back, of your fingernail. Right. But back then when the book was written, that wouldn't have been the case. Right. right. Yeah, not even remotely. So, I do think it's funny. The numbers are really funny in some of these places. There's an end note about risk chips, which are a real thing. And he, I think he's mentioning it in the context of like processors in TP consoles. And he says that they could have up to a quarter of a terabyte of RAM, which is um, which is still like an obscene amount of memory even now. And then you compare that to a 4.8 megabyte disk. <laughs> yeah. I, again, it yeah. makes me think that maybe he didn't really have a handle on the numbers that he was talking about. Right. But that would have been way more memory than on a current than floppy disks as they, as they existed then. 4.8 megabytes, you mean? Yeah. It would have been a couple times. I mean, it would have been about the equivalent times. of three yeah. floppy disks. Yeah. So. So. Yeah. And but nothing, I mean, not even close to enough memory to, to even hold a sound file. Right. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like this podcast, I, I compress these podcasts. They're about an hour and a half long. I compress them a lot to make them quick downloads. And let me see how big the last one was. Yeah, uh, while you're looking for that, I just uh, Googled and looked up how the storage capacity of video game cartridges, because um, that's yeah. kind of the closest thing that I've been thinking right, of right, in terms right. of uh, what TP cartridges would be. And those are about um, the largest was one megabyte. Huh. Hmm. So, yeah, that was for so the NES. What... And this is, I guess, the SNES uh, era. But, yeah, still about the same. So he would have been thinking that, well, that's a lot more than what what a cartridge can hold now. So he was right, yeah, it's like four more, times the amount. Four times yeah. as much, paying no attention to the fact that it still wouldn't be enough. <laughs> right. Hmm. I, can't, I can't get at this information very easily at the moment, but if I had to guess, I'd say it's in like the 10 to 11 megabyte range just for highly compressed audio and no video. Mm-hmm. I just think it's funny because it's like there were digital video formats in the early 90s that he could have used as reference to to imagine how how big a high definition feature length film would be. I mean, he could have mm-hmm. picked any number and said that's how much a right. cartridge held. Right. But but 4.8 megabytes is just is is nothing. Right. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I'm getting hung up on that and it's not it's not important. <laughs> uh Let's talk about about the uh, the V and V ads, the really awful right. ads. Yeah, okay. I have an existential question. Yeah. Ooh. So, on page four twelve, V and V, like most U.S. ad agencies, greedily buttered its bread on every conceivable side. So, if that is true, if dropped from a height. What side would that buttered bread fall on? Well, this is this would be like this is the basis for annular fusion, right? Is it just hovers a foot off the ground and spins <laughs> and then you can use that you can harness that energy to power whole cities. I was thinking one of the sides because the oh, yeah, uh, like the slice up. of bread would think to itself, "Huh, this is new." Yes. 
and <laughs> just try that on yeah. for size. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for yes. engaging in this thought experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so VNV kind of specializes in the, they start out advertising cable channels, but they, they stumble upon like one of their specialties being making these ads that are so repellent that people can't get them out of their heads, mm-hmm. but they also cause people to turn off the TV or change right. the channel, which right. contributes to the, the downfall of broadcast right. TV because nobody wants to see anything with ads in it. With those ads. With those ads specifically. Well, it right. just seems yeah. like if you're with watching, any ads. Well, but you're like you're watching a show on TV and this ad comes on and you can't stand to watch it, so you change channels, right? Right. Right. And then eventually it got to the away. point. Where you would change channels before or after the somehow anticipating, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they said there are uh, advanced VCRs or TP consoles that could detect yes. loudness and shrillness <laughs> yes. and use that mm-hmm. to automatically skip over ads. It's like the it's like what you were talking about the big hullabaloo yeah. when the VCRs you could take mm-hmm. things and then skip the ads. We had a VCR like that, and I remember yes, just how clunky it was that it you was, would. Because it, because you would have to, you could program in when it should stop recording to skip over ads. Uh, but it was so fickle because you'd have to be pre- absolutely precise about when the ad breaks were going to happen right. and how long they were going to last in mm-hmm. order for it to do that. Right. Uh, so that was, that was always kind of a, a pipe dream, I think. But I'm glad that in this universe they got it figured out. Right, yeah. But did they? Did they? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, well, it eventually gets to a place. They say that the uh, by the time that cartridges come around, that it was just if if anything had ads in it, they would be very easy to skip. And so ad advertising in on TV became sort of a meaningless exercise. Yes. Although, interestingly, for old people like me who do like on-demand, like, on-demand TV shows that I yeah. want to, just for, just through Comcast, right? Mm-hmm. You can't get rid of the ads on those, and you can't fast-forward through. Oh, that's mean. It is mm. mean, uh-huh. That's like anti-user technology, mm-hmm. you know? Like, yes. that's one of the things that I think he, he's clearly unable to anticipate here, because it does seem like it kind of comes out of left field, but, you know, there's... There's this whole war that we have now uh, on the internet uh, in digital advertising of like there's there's advertising and then you can get an ad blocker and then some websites have an ad block blocker. Right. Uh, and it's then like you, there, there are some advanced ad blockers that are ad block blocker blockers. Mm-hmm. And and right. it just never it's like this arms race that never ends. Right. Uh, it said something like that the freedom to choose and the right to be entertained is like equals all that is U.S. and true. Yeah. Like, like we want the freedom to choose. Oh, I think, I think and that's we an feel the right note. to be enter- entertained. I well, thought maybe. that that was something that Marat said. He may have said it too. But there's it, a, I think it's, uh, there's a, th- okay. So in EndNote one or yeah, EndNote 164, they say, um, Las Fourche and Veals are in fact transcendent geniuses of a particularly complex right time and place sort, and their appeals to an American ideology committed to the appearance of freedom almost unanalyzably compelling. Mm. What if a viewer could more or less 100% choose what's on at any given time? Choose and rent 
uh, over PC and modem and fiber optic line. So the thing about if you pre preferred, you could uh, so you could watch these on your PC high resolution monitor or you could jack them into a good old premillennial widescreen TV, which again is like that's Netflix. That's absolutely Netflix. Mm hmm. Yeah. All right. I want to take this moment to reassure everybody that in our time, Henry Winkler is OK. Yes, Henry Winkler <laughs> is great. Henry, yeah. Yes, in, in this version, Henry Winkler is kind of sad and considering uh, liposuction, I think. Yeah. Um, but, but in our world, in our real world, Henry Winkler is a delightful man who... Uh, what have I seen him on? Was he, did he cameo on The Good Place? Uh, he wasn't in The Good Place. He, was, uh, he had a pretty big um, role in... Um, Parks and Rec, though. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and most yeah. recently he is on the HBO television show Barry. Okay. Which I haven't seen, but I've heard good things about. Well, good for him. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, Henry Winkler is doing <laughs> just fine. His career is in a great place, and he is he is okay. Good. We were worried. Thank yeah. goodness. Yes. The ads were pretty outrageously horrifying. The, yeah. the tar scrapers. I could imagine yeah. them being TV ads, though. There, do you remember those ads that ran a few years ago about, like, foot fungus? Do you remember those? Where there's, like, a talking foot fungus CGI character who, like, climbs under somebody's toenail and... That does sound familiar. And I think there was another one for mucus in your lungs or something. Like, oh, just yeah. disgusting, yeah. awful, please don't show me this kinds of things mm -hmm. oh i did and the description of what ads are supposed to do ads are supposed to create an anxiety relievable by purchase yes mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah i also wondered have we heard about viney and veals somewhere else i don't this? think so yeah i think this is the first we've heard of them hmm they sounded familiar to me in some hmm. other... Let me just search and see. Okay. I thought that this is, is probably really true in a way today, too, that it wasn't when, when David Foster Wallace wrote the book, was he says the TV remote became really important and that you can, you know, you, you flick between one thing and another to find something that's interesting and and streaming stuff and anyway people who people who didn't have cable access found themselves with vast maddening blocks of utterly choiceless <laughs> and unentertaining time so <laughs> so crime rates and suicide went up uh. i haven't i have an answer for you you're going to find this answer deeply satisfying oh good oh air daddy okay is, was an account executive at viney and veals Oh, okay. wow. All right. Oh, that All is right. satisfying. That, that is, is very satisfying. satisfying. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and then they talk about they talk about the person that invented the interlace. Mm hmm. The interlace yes. founder, Noreen Lace Forche. Mm hmm. They also talk about Viney committing suicide by jumping off a bridge. Yes. Mm hmm. Yeah. The other thing that seemed really surprising to me that he foresaw was the streaming services, all the streaming, not just Netflix, but like 
Hulu and I don't even know all of them because I am I am old. Yeah, and I don't although, keep although the difference things, here, but... the difference here is that they all use Interlace's system. So they're right. all like subcontractors on right. Interlace. Right. When advertising fell apart, TV advertising, something about that networks, networks didn't have to make sure that their programming wasn't more entertaining than the ads anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and reminded me of the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> people, there are lots of people who watch for the entertaining ads and not for the sporting event itself. Right. And then they say that they point out that there is no advertising on the interlace cassettes. Right. Because when things sell well, then interlace just kicks back some of the profit to the yeah, producers. which is exactly how. Well, it's right. not exactly how Netflix works, but it's exactly how like Amazon and Hulu work. Hmm. They also point out that that interlace didn't carry much of James O's work while he was alive. They said. Yeah, although it also says that they didn't it didn't carry much after he died either and it kind of or okay. I think it kind of fell off. The the few that were on there just were not reviewed not re renewed after his death. They also mentioned that uh, another thing came up that they mentioned that Veals managed uh Gentles ad campaigns. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's so right. They, they that became a pretty powerful ad agency. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm Although it does say also that that was at a time when all ad executives were desperate for new clients. And so it was kind right. of a, a shot in the right. dark to take that account. The other thing, the other thing that I thought was really funny was, so the ad industry is reeling, right? They can't, they're, they're losing their TV advertisement uh, outlet. And so then, then they went to billboards and ads on buses and, Commercial airlines were towing banners oh, right. and mm -hmm. banners, and they talked Ford into printing ads on the sides of some of their vehicles. But then it said that didn't work because uh, consumers wearing their Nike T-shirts and Marlboro caps refused to invest in cars that sold out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was right. super funny. Yeah. <laughs> also, we learned that Stitt was an early supporter of Gentle. Right. Oh yeah, and, yeah. And we people do. are. I'm. I'm still trying to pin down Stitt's politics because it seems like when when it talks about his affinity for Mary Esther Thode, it sounds like he's got a thing for people who have been politically re repressed right. in some way or silenced. Right. And yet here it says that people are wary of of his ultra right wing politics. Right. So that. That doesn't really add up for me. Although Mario, Mario, it says Mario knows or Mario knew. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that it has more to do with his because of more his of his tennis take philosophy. On tennis. Yeah, and of, and, uh, and the business of sending from yourself what you hope will not return. Right, getting which rid is, of, is part of part of, of Gentle's campaign platform right. of shooting garbage into literal. space. His is Yikes. literal, right. Literal, and Stitz is more. Figurative. Figurative. Yeah. And so we have much we have much hanging out there. We mm -hmm. don't know what's gonna be the what's gonna what's gonna come of the eschaton debacle. We don't mm -hmm. know. Uh, we don't uh, know and neither do they how Marat and Steeply are going to get off that get lead. Off the ledge. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, we just, still don't know what's gonna happen to Hal. Right. Um, yeah. 
There's the DMZ that's still hanging around out there. Right. Um, right. Yeah. There was the car that was watching the oh, yeah. Eschaton. Eschaton. The yeah. Ford was the Nunhagen uh, ad on the side. And there's What's-His-Name's uh, uh, interview coming up with Helen Steeply. Yeah. Right. Ryan. And uh, what's his, why can't I say his name? Orin. Uncle. No, no. The, oh, uh, it, she's CT? coming to CT's interview. Coming oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, CT's yeah. CT's interview that's coming oh, up. I forgot about that. And we've kind of, hmm. we left Ennett House where there's all kinds of stuff brewing all the time. Yeah. Churning, if not brewing, yeah. at least churning. Mm-hmm. And all those characters that we've met in various locations all gathered together at Ennett House. Mm-hmm. Including uh, Madam Psychosis. Yeah. And Does, has anyone noticed that she's not broadcasting? That's a good question. She's got this loyal following. What? What the heck? Yeah. Or do they have a guest host? Happen? Do they have a I guest don't know. host? Or maybe they play old episodes. episodes Who knows? Like reruns. Yeah. Does anyone have anything they'd like to plug or announce? If you want to catch more of me and my paintings, find that on Instagram at CardboardVV. If you'd like to see my 2008 photo series Moving Portraits, depicting actors I've directed, taken on 16mm film and printed in a dark room, you can find those on my website, agingrick.com. I have a website, but there's nothing new and interesting <laughs> on it <laughs> right now. So but you should go there anyway. You should go visit briannacrats.com. That's right. Uh, oh, <laughs> and uh, like and subscribe to this podcast or sure, we're on we're on. Yeah, we're on iTunes. You can write a review on iTunes. You can write a review on Spotify. Uh, I don't know if that helps us. It's hard to say. I mean, with a listenership this small. Uh, <laughs> Do I, we have a listenership? <laughs> you know, I looked I looked at the, the analytics the other day and we're averaging like 10 to 15 listens per episode. Wow. I, think, wow. I think only hi. one or two of those are me. So, yeah. Hi. Wow. OK. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, great to have you listening. Listening. Yeah. It's awesome. Listening to us ramble and stumble through this book. Yeah. Um, I'd uh, like to do... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that uh, my plug is for if you if you have trouble hearing people, you should get hearing aids. Ooh, uh, yes. Your grandma, your grandma just got some. She's 100, and she got used to them in two weeks. And nice. Is, and, and is fantastically excited about them. So if you can't oh, hear. Good. That's so good. If you can't hear, go do something about it. It's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And she says hello to everyone, by the way. Oh, hi, Grandma. Hi. So last week I plugged an episode of the Dollop podcast. This week I'd like to plug another podcast that I listened to called Well, There's Your Problem. Uh, <laughs> it's an engineering podcast with slides on YouTube. It's hosted by a cranky ultra-leftist engineer who talks <laughs> a lot about bridge and tunnel collapses. Um, but they have a couple uh, really relevant episodes. So uh, speaking of like chemical waste problems. They have a recent episode called the Guayana incident about uh, the difficulties of containing hazardous waste. Uh, In this case, a cesium powder released through a neighborhood when scrappers stole a radiotherapy machine from an abandoned hospital in Brazil. Um, So speaking of those ridiculous newspaper headlines, they have a recent episode about the disaster that was the the new i think a philadelphia inquirer headline called buildings matter 2 
uh, that was uh, printed in response to the Black oh. Lives Matter protests. Uh, and it's, it's examining the engineering disaster of how a headline like that could get printed in a newspaper. Uh, that I think it really gets into like the the difficult economics of newspapers and print media in the digital age, which is also something that this section kind of talks about. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, and finally, finally relevant to our world, they have an episode on the 1918 Philadelphia war bond parade uh, in which a bunch oh. of people went to a parade during a pandemic with predictable results. Oh. Um, so, yeah, that's that's what I've been listening to recently. Wow. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 418 to 442. Our music is no, by David weeks. Nichols. Two weeks. Oh, yeah. Uh, so next well, time. Yes. Next, next time. time. I should just next start podcast. saying next time because next I, time. I, I'm not exactly sure what the release schedule is going to be, whether they're gotcha. going to be weekly or every other. Right. We went like two weeks without an episode last time, but we have like one in the can as we speak right now. So I don't know. We'll just see. The next. Yeah. Next. next time. The next episode, <laughs> we'll be talking about pages 418 to 442. Our music is by David Nichols. You can listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Thanks for listening. And don't worry, we've been moving forward full bore on anticipating various highly involved relocation scenarios. Scenario? Is it scenarios or scenario? ignore me. You're hard to ignore. Aww, thank you.